Yeah, well, it's still anyway. It will it will be interesting though, just because I'm I am definitely thinking about the fact that you guys, when I listen to the podcast, you guys talk so fast, and uh, huh. I wonder if that's actually not... something we need to work on. No, like, I, you I don't, don't want to talk I, too fast. I no, no, I enjoy it. Like I do. Like I think it, it's fine. But like I'm just, especially when it comes to this stuff, like you know, I tend to speak more slowly and sometimes a little bit more dramatically when the the moment strikes. I mean, hey, um, adding a little bit of dramatic tension never hurt anyone. Well, character trait speaks dramatically. I like that. <laughs> character trait, yeah, speaks dramatically. Uh, some um, people say I speak dramatically all the time. Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of The Problem with Reading. I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. And I'm Sam. Uh, Zach. <laughs> yes, uh, that's we, we have another special episode here for you today. Uh, amazing, fantastic, never seen before. We have in uh, virtual presence, Zach. Uh, say hi, Zach. Hello. Uh, Zach will be joining us to discuss... Uh, sort of an overview of the master and his emissary, the first half, which we've read. I, I, I am aghast that we've only read half of this book, and it's been a, like a full year. My God, it really um, has been. We, we need to to, to work on this. Uh, uh, but uh, Zach has a very special connection to this book, uh, uh, which I'll I'll let Stephen uh, expound upon. Yeah, so uh, we were in the midst of season two, or whatever we were calling the post uh, After Virtue McIntyre times, and uh, I was sitting in the, I believe, Seattle airport watching a YouTube video on uh, Star Wars Clone Wars, and I get a message from uh, Zach saying that uh, he'd been listening to the podcast, and I think he and I had met maybe once or twice before then, but uh, it was actually it was a really cool thing to, to get that. And then he starts bringing up like different books that we could be going over or what have you. And Master and His Emissary was one of the, the big ones that he was really advocating. I have a, a, a friend who uh, couldn't stop talking about it as well. So kind of between, between that, it was already on the mind. And then him saying, though, this would be really good. And he was also kind enough to, to purchase copies. So uh, we, we decided, yeah, let's go for it. And uh, I got to say, it was a, a prime recommendation. It was indeed. No regrets. Yeah, I've been, uh, I've been evangelizing this book for a while, so it was nice to finally have some luck. Um, you know, I, uh, I actually, my alma mater for undergraduates, the same as Brevin's, and um, unfortunately, they, uh, they yanked this book from the curriculum uh, the uh, year after my class had the opportunity to kind of go through that, um, that class. And, well, it's, it's a real bummer because uh, it was I think the best book I was ever introduced to in college and probably this sounds bad, but it was really like the only one that I spent like a really serious amount of time doing, I suppose you would say a, a deep reading of it. And uh, it was really convicting, personally convicting um, in, a, in a strange sense that nothing uh, else that I had read in, in college was convicting in the same way. So it, it really left a strong impact. I've, and thinking about it ever since I read it. And when I actually first read it, I did it borrowing a, a, someone else's book. And then I, I bought my own copy and um, well, I'm just honored that you guys, uh, you know, picked it up and decided to do a whole podcast about it. Cause it's worth talking about. Indeed it is. Yeah, so, absolutely. So, so Zach, uh, 
for for the listeners who don't know both of us, which is probably several of you, which we found out that there's more than one listener, so we can't say listener anymore, but we still might just because we can. But uh, Zach and I lived together uh, in in uh, college while I was an undergrad, and he was uh, freed from the shackles of that. And I can confirm he was trying to convince me to read the book even then, oh, so many years ago. So uh, he 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 is a true believer. Uh, but but Zach, just quick errata. So did they replace? Uh, master and his emissary with personal knowledge or did you read both at one point because if you read both that would have been probably the single best class that has like ever existed also also which class was this for this was for the uh the honors program uh the uh final um faith in science too right yes the faith in science uh aspect of the curricula so Faith and Science 1 would have been the big book was Personal Knowledge by Michael Polanya. And this was the big book for uh, Faith and Science 2. And I think the reason it got yanked was simply that the professors that taught it uh, were pulled from that class. And, you know, that I guess that happens. So uh, but it's something that I really wish had stuck around because uh, it, it really was a great kind of capstone to the honors program. And, and probably the thing I'm most thankful for in terms of like, you know, intellectual uh, stimulation during my, uh, my college time. Yeah, that is quite unfortunate because uh, so, so I took the class then after the book was yanked and it basically was just like some watered down psychology stuff about brain science, but nothing terribly impactful or, or anything that I remember to this day, really. Um, aside from the fact that humans can only memorize, like, uh, what is it, a hundred faces? Like, like there's these weird things that um, look very similar, but if you focus on them, you can like start to tell difference in them, and they have a very creepy name. They look very creepy. Um, but if you focus your mental energy on memorizing the differences in between these, you start to lose your ability to distinguish in between faces. So basically, whatever portion of your brain can distinguish in between faces, you can only devote it to one thing. Uh, in in that regard which is wait so there's a way of giving yourself facial blindness uh basic well i mean yes yeah yeah basically yeah wild um thank you steven we're we're on camera for for the first time so it's it's interrupting my normal um mental thing of just like sitting here staring at a blank screen See, the world is presenting itself to you and you're not used to that because you're relying on your left hemisphere too much this wow. is what this is what McGilchrist warned us about not using cameras for podcasts. That's his entire premise. Listen, uh... what it is is that if you use Zoom with video, that is the proper ordering of things. If you ever turn your video off in Zoom, that is the dominance of the left brain destroying Western culture. That's that is a fun. fact. The fact. All right, but yes. So, gentlemen, I have been lax. What are we all drinking tonight? Well, I myself am having a cup of watered-down coffee. Um, so I've actually I've de- developed this habit for the past uh, week. So uh, it is almost finals week. It is the week before finals week right now. And both of my uh, grad classes decided, I can't tell if it was for the benefit of the students or for themselves. I'm going to not make a judgment call on that. I have my suspicions, though. Uh, and they both decided to end class a week early, which means final projects and finals are a week early. And so I've been cramming as much as possible. And so I've developed the technique of I, I brew myself a pot of coffee uh, or um, a French press of coffee in the morning. 
I drink all of it, and then I boil more water and just use that same pot over and over and over again. So towards the end, I just have brown water pretty much, but it's enough caffeine to kind of keep me going throughout the day, you know, fall asleep in an exhausted mess, and then wake up and start the process again. It's a pro-level pro technique. I would say that that's horrible and disgusting, but I do the exact same thing. Um, <laughs> Great minds, <laughs> uh, right? Yeah. Uh, as for myself, I am drinking uh, some eggnog. Eggnog, how it, it is meant to be, with a big old shot of Evan Williams bourbon in there mm. and lightly dusted with nutmeg. So I am living the dream here. It's Christmas season. We can finally drink eggnog. Uh, yes, it's, it's excellent. How about you, Zach? I'm drinking water. Because... Uh, water with lemon? Nope, just water. Because water is awesome. And I am just thankful that I can drink clean water. You know, people uh, people ask me, like, you know, where do you get all your energy from when I'm working, you know, through the day? Or, you know, you must you must have just had a, a couple cups of coffee or something like, no, I don't drink coffee. I don't drink water. You know, I just drink water. I'm just high on the natural, you know, high of life. I'm just excited to, you know, help our customers, excited to help our company, you know, excited to just be here. So, you know, water, I think, reflects that incitement excitement uh very well so (laughs) i feel like we missed a great opportunity to like do an advertisement for like dasani water or something like that so i mean hey if uh, anyone from a water agency is listening we can uh, we can start putting plugs in yeah yeah we'll invite zach on to do our uh water reviews Uh, (laughs) (laughs) are there any preferred waters you have i actually am curious about this so like I've never really tasted difference between like bottled water, water from the sink or, or what, like filtered water, whatever, like being a water connoisseur yourself. Is there a difference? Yeah. Um, I mean, I just, uh, I just drink, you know, I have a Brita water filter. Um, and, uh, I just put the water in the sink and the filter and then pour it in the glass. And it's that simple, you know, fair enough. Well, there you go. Uh, there is a, a, funny thing with water that it, it does make a difference so uh sam uh sam adams brewery uh uh in in, in boston so they use t- uh boston tap water as part of the beer process and it, but they have breweries in other states but those breweries treat their water to the same ph level as the boston water so that the flavor is consistent across all their breweries Oh, that's interesting. Actually, there's a similar phenomenon. I forget where I heard this, but there's a similar phenomenon with Chicago pizza sauce. Um, so like one of the really? reasons Chicago pizza is so famous is like, like yes, they they pioneer kind of the deep dish lasagna esque pizza, but apparently there is something about the sauce that's actually unique to Chicago because it has something to do with Chicago water. I don't know if I like that. I don't. I. I don't like the idea of Chicago water. That, that, that only sounds dirty to me. There's like no world oh, where yeah, there's Chicago no, water is a good thing. Oh, there's no way that like it's therefore healthier or whatever. I could maybe accept that it's tastier, but like Chicago water is not going to be cleaner than like Podunk Nowhereville water. I can guarantee it that much. I will say, Zach, you are spoiled in that you live in the Pacific Northwest, which just has the best water of pretty much anywhere. Um, DC water is is not fabulous you can taste just the hint just the hint of of the swamp and with just like a slight aftertaste of government grifters um in in every glass so we we filter most of ours when we drink it all right well speaking of filtering our brains filter all of the information 
that is presented to us and that it is represented in our consciousness in various ways. We've been talking about this for the past, oh my God, almost a year now. Um, and uh, we're here to talk about it just to wrap up the first half of the book. And I believe Zach is going to lead us through just a couple highlights, a couple key, couple key points. And uh, yeah, so Zach, take it away. Yeah, well, I think the best thing to do is to start with kind of where we've been um, and then move ahead to kind of what's to come in the book. Uh, I should also note that I have not read, uh, well, you guys have been reading, you know, I've sort of read parts of the first half and then parts of the second half, but I haven't read this book in full since I did so for school, you know, five, six years ago at this point. Um, but it is still something that I return to and kind of skim parts of, but I would like to do a deep reading of it again at some point. But I'd like to start by, you know, talking about some of the big ideas about, you know, why this book is a big deal. Uh, and then kind of talking about, like I said, where we were uh, with what we've been talking about for the last year on this podcast, and then kind of where we're going. And I have a, uh, a little teaser that uh, just want to read out loud um, some stuff when we get to that moment. Uh, but I think first off, I'm curious to hear from you guys about, um, you know, do you think this this book has value? I mean, is it worth recommending to people? And if so, like, who's it worth recommending to? I mean, do you walk up to some stranger on the street? Do you go on a random Discord channel and say, "Hey, this is the best book I've ever read"? Or what kind of how do you how do you approach that? But first, you know, is the book valuable? Oh, hands down. Um, this is one of the better books I've read. Both just quality writing he's writing about some very dense material both uh neuroscience and also like phenomenology uh neither of which i would typically characterize as particularly page turning and yet he is able to to make them not only interesting but also fairly approachable from the like from the uh all things considered in that these are pretty dense topics and yet he's able to break down a lot of these really complicated ideas into pretty accessible things um, you definitely have to work at it, but I, I would say that on the whole, it's uh, a very accessible uh, study. And then on the whole, I think accessibility aside, it's, it's important. Um, this is about how we think, and I mean, how we think determines how we live, determines how we interact with the world, uh, determines how the world interacts with us, according to McGilchrist. So on the whole, hands down, would recommend uh, this. Is, this is one of the better books I've I've read, um, which I think. Uh, my my one friend and then you yourself, Zach, told me before I was reading it that this is a like a life changing sort of book. Yeah, I would concur with most, if not all, of that. I mean, the book made me somehow like Heidegger, which I never anticipated happening in my life. Uh, so that so that was interesting. I think the sort of the big thing that I would say so far, and again, this is having only read half, but only having read half, it still is just there are there are certain books that do that are comprehensive enough as to provide a in a complete and a complete and fleshed out lens by which to view everything else and those books are somewhat rare i think this is one of those books i think something like after virtue is one of those books from what i've read of secular age that's one of those books the kind of books that give you a frame of reference for everything that's going on but it's not necessarily about any particular thing that's going on and I think those books are incredibly valuable. I struggle to know what precisely to do with them, but I think I would not be, I am better off for having read books like that, um, even if I, I am somewhat, you know, lost in the cosmos, as it were, uh, knowing where to go from there. So I would say that your, your 
possibilities for thinking about things are impoverished if you don't have this if you know about this book but you don't read it you're impoverishing yourself as to uh, a frame of reference that you could use to look at the world um, so yes valuable I think that's a that's a really good way of phrasing that I you brought up lost in the cosmos rather cleverly cleverly I think with books like these lost in the cosmos is a great way of articulating how deranged of an age we live in um, and now you could say something of the fact that you know writers for the last two, three, four thousand years have thought their age was deranged, but it does seem that Percy is able to encapsulate, like, no, this is particularly deranged, but doesn't necessarily provide a frame of reference. He just more points to something being weird and kind of screwy. Both After Virtue and Master and His Emissary are both saying, this is why things are deranged. Uh, McIntyre saying, the breakdown of the ethical, or of ethical ways, sorry, McIntyre saying, the breakdown of ethical conversations is why things are so deranged. The breakdown of virtue, the breakdown of how we see the good and the bad and everything in between. The Gilchrist is saying the left brain is starting to dominate the right brain and agree or disagree with either of these. They are, they are providing a full, as you said, frame of reference for approaching this, as Percy says, deranged age. So you said the, uh, the left brain, you know, dominates the, the right brain. And this gets to, you know, one of my other, you know, kind of big things about this book. So, okay, if this book is worth, you know, proselytizing about, right, like, and you can determine for yourself what context it's best to do that in and what, you know, demographic it's best to do that in. Um, but, like, how do you explain it to people? Like, you, it's so, I, I run into this all the time with this, like, it's a book about, differences in brain hemispheres the left brain is dominating the right brain it all seems rather conspiratorial or strange and so it's hard to kind of sell the value of the book to other people um and and ultimately it is a book that you know as all books need need to in order to get wide readership there needs to be at least some sort of big selling point you know as far as like you see this book what's going to hook you on it you know is it going to be because we got to judge book books by its cover right like to some degree there's so much out there these days so who do you market to and how do you market it like if it's worth reading how do you sell it to other people i don't know if i have a great answer to that i will say that i've encountered that similar problem uh, particularly thinking of a friend here in the dc area who's studying philosophy at uh catholic u and trying to explain this book and sort of one of the struggles is that um when i try to explain some of the concepts i get i get sucked into a conversation about philosophy instead it it becomes um the 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 conversation instantly shifts to a lower order of things because i mean if there's one one thing that this book i think demonstrates is that there are that there's a vast importance to things that can't be articulated in words and that's things that have to be experienced and things that only have their content and meaning in experience and can't be transferred by by other means and a lot of the book so far the first half really is sort of like a first order first principle type of uh conversation that while it is first principles is also incredibly difficult to communicate to another person because they'll always respond with something further down the line not realizing that this is like a the sublimating uh overarching category for everything else I guess I've tried to, yeah, I don't know. Uh, Steven, do you have any insight here? I'm, I'm uh, struggling. 
I, I think you're correct in saying that this is a book that's difficult to categorize and to describe. Because I, and I tried I, talking with, with coworkers or with friends. The easiest way to describe it, it's a book on brain lateralization. He's talking about left brain and right brain. But that is, it's not, that's not a good descriptor of it, even if technically true. Uh, but it's not just on philosophy. I mean, he is going into neuroscience and trying to break down a lot of kind of basic neuroscience facts. Uh, but he's also going into psychology. He's going into culture. He's going into philosophy, uh, particularly phenomenological ph uh, philosophy, which itself is a very particular branch. But I don't think you need to have, you don't need to be an expert in neuropsychology or phenomenological philosophy to appreciate this book. You don't even need to be particularly interested in either of those fields. I'm not particularly interested in neuropsychology, and yet I find this book fascinating. Um, it's, yeah, very difficult to categorize, but I think I would say that anyone who is trying to uh, figure out uh, or uh, anyone who's doing any serious uh, philosophizing or even kind of moderate armchair philosophizing on culture or just on in general how we interact with the world i mean you'd be better off with this uh there's actually a quote i quickly uh found um he's uh this is in the foreword um one of the most common reactions from readers has been you articulated ideas that i knew to be true but for which i had never found words you told me something that was immediately compelling because i was at some level already aware of the patterns you were revealing and the associations you were making end quote which I think that that in and of itself is well, even if you get nothing else out of it, even if you think that his cultural commentary is a load of garbage and that his neuropsychology is kind of meh or whatever, he's helping reveal things about ourselves that perhaps we knew, but we're never able to articulate. I think that in and of itself is a huge takeaway. Yeah, I think that's a great line that you just brought out from the forward. Um, I wasn't familiar with that, but that is why I found this book to be so important is because it was personally compelling. McGilchrist articulated all these things about the way, not the way the human mind works, not the way, uh, you know, that, you know, these abstract things out there, the left and right hemispheres, you know, when human brains interact, but he articulated what was happening in my mind at different points in my life. I read McGilchrist and I felt like, he gave me the language to understand myself, which I previously lacked. And, you know, a, a language with which I could, you know, to some sense sort of control or discipline myself in a way that I, I hadn't previously thought about, you know, as much as you can do that sort of thing explicitly, uh, indeed, as that is part of the problem. Um, the, the problem, problem with reading. reading indeed. Um, so I, I do really like how compelling it is. And it's just really hard to communicate to other people, you know, this is a book about who you are. This is a book about consciousness. You know, it's like, I want to sell it to the people who love like the Myers-Briggs and the Enneagram stuff and, you know, like understanding yourself, you know, I am a INFJ or whatever, you know, like, okay, you know, that's nice acronym, but like, do you really like, this is, this is about how our consciousness manifests itself. I love that, um, you know, I'm sort of getting ahead of myself to kind of, you know, recapping some parts of the book. Um, but when I think about, uh, you know, sort of these, uh, th this book, okay, sorry, let me back up. Um, when I was taught this book in school, uh, it was primarily talked about in the context of what are we going to, what are these philosophical positions we're going to talk about, about the nature of con consciousness and the nature of the soul 
And what does that mean? And so we were given basically three philosophical positions, or at least I remember three. There was an actual sheet somewhere that I probably haven't thrown away that it's out there somewhere. But what I remember is substance dualism versus reductive physicalism versus non-reductive physicalism. Uh, and this book was going to be used to sell us all on the idea of non-reductive physicalism. Well, I don't buy it. I'm still substance dualist. Oops. Uh, but I, I think McGilchrist gives you, you know, McGilchrist isn't as obviously a non-reductive physicalist as it might seem on first glance. There's a part of the, I think, introduction where he sort of um, talks about this idea that, um, you know, the sort of, maybe it's not in the introduction, but, you know, the this idea of like, there's this immaterial soul, and then there's, you know, your physical body, that that's, you know, sort of um, Gnostic thinking or something along those lines, and it's left hemisphere, you know, uh, false differentiation or something like that. But you know, that that's not like, I think that's missing the point. Uh, I think there's, I think when you call something physicalism, you inevitably slide into a reductive version of that because you have to explain it. You have to sell it. You end up with physicalism and you just end up talking about material things. But there is something about, you know, when McGilchrist does uh, at times briefly talk about, you know, the two worlds of the left and right hemisphere. Well, this comes your consciousness is just manifested in these worlds. Your consciousness is not these worlds. We don't know where consciousness comes from. We don't have, like, that is not something that we have the language or the, you know, sort of epistemological technique to understand in the scientific sense. And so things of that nature, you know, things about the soul very much do still remain a mystery. And I think McGilchrist respects that mystery. And so I say I'm a substance dualist because that allows me to respect the mystery. If I use physicalism in my language, I've given up on the mystery and I've decided that everything is merely physical processes, you know, things that can be understood by scientific epistemology. And I simply don't believe that. I think there are a lot of things in life that, you know, are not understood by scientific epistemology. And I think, you know, to, to borrow the Polanyi uh, end of chapter stuff from uh, I was looking at my little brother sent me last night and I'm really proud of my little brother for sending me this. But you know, we need to restore again the idea that we can hold unproven beliefs, you know, and unproven in the sense of that scientific epistemology. I can confirm that there's still hard pushing uh, non-reductive physicalism as the uh, core in the, in that uh, philosophy class after you left. Um, and I think I'm pretty sure I've told both of you this this story, but there's a legendary story told by one of our friends at one of our uh, amazing college parties that talking about this philosophy prof who actually taught this class pushing uh, non-reductive physicalism. And she went and talked to the biology students. It was like a science or sorry, like a philosophy science, like get together, like, Hey, let's convince all the STEM people that, that philosophy is good. So she was trying to hard sell them on non-reductive physicalism with the assumption being that they're going to all be physicalists. Uh, and then the biology prof gets up and it's just like, yeah, I don't really believe any of that. I'm a substance dualist. So what? <laughs> and all of this. Yeah. Anyway, it's uh, very amusing. I think that's actually one of the things I respect most about Mick Gilchrist is he is one of the best authors that I've read that is so good at drawing the line or delineating what epistemology he is using. Uh, when he's talking philosophy, he very clearly is using philosophical techniques, and then he'll jump over and say, we can see kind of a scientific analog to this, like when Heidegger says such and such. Well, 
like the world does actually present itself to the right hemisphere in an analogous way, but is always very crisp on how how he's going about that sort of thing. When he's talking neuropsychology, he is very scientific. When he's talking philosophy, he's very very philosophical. Uh, and he does a very good job delineating those two, which I I know I've I've sung this guy's praises on that time and time again, but I think it bears repeating. It's one of the best. Uh, one of the, he's one of the best authors that is able to delineate how he is approaching uh, these different, these very different, very important fields. Yeah, McGilchrist definitely has a very fine-tuned sense of how how we should know, you know, because uh, epistemology is all about how you know what you know, right? So when he talks about all these different things, you know, he has a really fine-tuned sense of like, this is how we know this, this is how we know that, you know, and sort of in what sense do we really know, you know, because after all, you know, how do we really know uh, that's that's what the whole thing is about, and um, he does a very good job of of working working that through. All right, uh, well, I think we can talk about you know sort of recapping where we've been. Again, I haven't read the first half of the book as recently as you guys have, uh, but I thought at first we should just talk about. Okay, we've talked a lot about the book now, but let's start describing just recapping again. What is the hemispheric asymmetry that McGilchrist is talking about? What are the actual differences between the left and right hemisphere? What are the stereotypes? How are the stereotypes sort of true and sort of not? You know, why do they exist? But ultimately, you know, what is the difference? Sure, I can go the the stereotype. So, you know, just sort of typical pop psychology stuff. The right brain is creative and stuff the left brain is smart and articulate the right brain is emotional and floppy the left brain is you know focused and uh in intense in various ways um and and, you know further stereotype things that uh you're either a right brain or a left brain person um yeah that's that's I, i i would say like if you ask the person on on the street to uh talk about uh brain lateralization that's what they would say which I do find it interesting, and we'll get into the more conspiratorial uh, theory uh, in a in a bit. But it is funny how even when we're describing the two the two sides, like even in their stereotypes that are completely untrue, like inevitably the left brain always comes out on top. The, like the articulate left brain that is able to speak is like, yeah, I'm great, aren't I? Even if we don't know what we're doing, it somehow comes out that like. The le- yeah, the left brain is clearly the superior. Now, granted, maybe that's because it's espousing certain values that just happen. Like, even if those values are associated with left brain and right brain, and even if they're accurate, which they're not, but even if they are, maybe it's just that the values that we associate are just the ones that the left brain is. But I, I still find it hilarious that it's always like, yeah, stupid right brain, it's so dumb. And you can imagine the left hand, uh, the the left side of the brain, like you know, rubbing its hands together and being like, ha ha, yes, the right brain is stupid. And the right brain being silent, just like, oh, I guess, whatever. Man, I, like that, I, I had that like same thought at the same time that you did, but before you, you know, before you said it. Um, and like, I'm just realizing now that you could so, so easily make a religion out of this. Like Zoroastrianism, you know, there's inside you, there's the right brain and the left brain and they're at war and you have to figure out, you know, how to, keep the the proper like oh my god that it's too easy too easy well zach correct me if i'm wrong i'm guessing he's going to 
at least have some amount of commentary on religion and the the nature of how uh, uh the nature of religion in with regards to left brain right brain let's let's just save that for the little preview that i've saved for you all right okay it, it does involve a little bit of that um but i think just to recap you know i, I was looking through quotes uh so page 52 you know working out well i have the older edition than than you guys but Hopefully it's still page 52. But, you know, in general, then the left hemisphere's tendency is to classify or the right hemisphere's is to identify individuals. I mean, it's you know, classification versus identification, uh, right brain, uh, you know, presentation, left brain re representation, representation. Um, and so therefore, you know, we, we sort of get the general model uh, of what the hemispheres do uh, and that, you know, the right brain is all about, you know, I, I always think about the part where he's talking about animals. It's it's just, you go to a farm, you go anywhere, you just look at the little pigeons on the, the you know, here in the city. You think about, you know, is that bird, that bird is like, I am me with his, uh, his, his left eye, you know, which is right hemisphere, general awareness, making sure that I'm not going to stomp on him, you know, and then if he's going to turn his attention to me, if he's going to actually, you know, like manipulate me in some way, he's going to turn and look with his um, right eye, which is left hemisphere. Um, and in the same way, you sort of we get into this in the part on like language, uh, truth, and music. That chapter, right? Mm -hmm. We he starts talking about right-handedness. This is I I remember when I first read this. It really just I was I was floored. Like I always wondered what the deal was with like why there's so many right-handed people versus left-handed people. Uh, and this gets into the stereotype thing a little bit, but it's this idea that, you know, the right hand, left hemisphere grasping, you know, fine motor control, you know, specific attentional focus, uh, you know, left hemisphere or right hemisphere rather. So right hemisphere, you know, left hand, you know, sort of general awareness um, idea. And I think that's the sketch that he outlines. Um, and then he expounds upon that moving through part one to talk about not just two types of attention, but two ways of being in the world, two worlds in themselves. Right. I think, and it's, it's important um, that that manipulation versus, versus general attention also Ubers, uh, I thou versus I it and music is I thou it. When I sing, I'm singing directly to you. There is no symbol. There's no, um, I, what is it that Walker pursuit would say triadic uh, relationship. Yep. There is no abstract symbol symbol that I am to, it is I'm singing directly to you, or I am receiving your music directly from you to me, whereas language is uh, I it. And so you have these two modes of communication that are completely different, completely different paradigms. Yeah, when I was looking at sort of some things to summarize when we talk about what we've read so far, uh, I honed in on exactly what you just mentioned, that uh, this quote from page 106, music is communication, but it speaks to us not about things. Language speaks about things. Music speaks to people. Uh, you know, and I, and I think, right, this also stems from uh, McGilchrist's sort of philosophical position uh, when talking about neuroscience, that thinking is prior to language. You have thoughts, you know, but most of those thoughts are never, you know, like internally verbalized as language. It's not like, you know, I think I'm going to move my hand right now. And you have to actually think the words in your head. You just respond. Your body just responds to the world around you. I mean, it's that simple. Um, so kind of moving a, a, a different direction then, or a little bit different direction, talking about the left hemisphere. 
he has another great one-liner where he just says, language is the money of thought, right? So, you know, this is the sort of, um, oh, what's what's the dude's name? Wichtenstein. Wichtenstein. That sort of, in that same vein. Um, but it, a thought just occurred to me as we were talking now, though, about, you know, like the left hemisphere is uh, is taking over, right? Like that's kind of the, the conspiratorial bend to this book. Um, well, it's kind of like, you know, you hear people's uh, critique of capitalism, like a shark that's just going to keep on eating until it consumes itself, right? In the same way, you've got this like, you know, you've got this currency, which is language, and it's going to keep going until it consumes itself. Uh, and that's kind of uh, where you get into the really like, you know, the the bizarre, the nihilistic, you know, just the over-representation and representation you know, running things through a photocopier until you're so far away from reality that you have convinced yourself that, you know, you are living in a unreal world until you are living in the matrix. And ultimately, you know, when you get to this kind of the now moving on to the kind of the third section, I guess I sort of just to back up, I break the first part of the book down into three sections. The first being, you know, just talking about the two hemispheres, hemispheric asymmetry, what's that all about. Then second is really the language, truth, and music. That's the bridging chapter. And then you have the two different worlds, right? And so ultimately, you know, sort of the world of the left hemisphere is this world of endless representation or, uh, you know, continual reprocessing. And that's the world that, you know, if you kind of are in that world long enough, you become convinced that, nothing is real anymore. It's like a splinter in your mind, uh, as, uh, as Morpheus says in the film. Uh, and that's where, you know, you can really see that sort of thing in the different, you know, sort of cultural obsessions we have, you know, something that Mel Gilchrist, you know, doesn't talk about cause it's kind of a pop culture thing, but you know, you think about the success of a film like the matrix and its pop philosophy, and you think about, uh, the success of a film like inception, which isn't a, a very, deeply philosophical film, but it has to do with this um, main character whose wife kills herself because she is convinced that she is not living in the real world, even though she is. And it all has to do with, you know, like the nature of dreams or whatever. Uh, But once she experiences, you know, the sort of um, surreal video game land uh, dream where they can manipulate things in that way uh, and then is brought back to reality, she doesn't think it's real anymore. You know, and this this has to do, of course, with the, the premise of the film and what Inception is and all that jazz. But there's a reason why that film was made. You know, I don't think we we would have the um, sort of endless representation to make a film like that, you know, 100 years ago. Well, maybe 100 years ago, but, you know, maybe maybe not 200. I, I, I will jump in here because um, I, I sort of had a thought based on, on what you were just saying on how you might pitch this book. And. I'm taking it as, as given that you're pitching this book to a friend who would actually read the book. So like not for a popular, like just like sell it off the shelf, but for someone who is a serious person who wants to try to understand what's going on in the world. And the pitch is just that it, it provides one, like we've already said, the language for so many things that, we get little splinters of in all of these different writers, all these other authors that have their own niche things are trying to get at uh, connections about different kinds of attention and David Foster Wallace. David Foster Wallace's whole thing is about kinds of attention. And this book finally gets at why the different kinds find David Foster Wallace's 
obsession and and neuroses and you know and, and like you've just referenced with the matrix and with as we've already mentioned uh walker percy people that they may have liked and that they pulled away from significant writers and authors this is the thing that connects them all in the background this is the core of the web i think you can apply what you said to mcintyre as well in that his critique on the enlightenment project of justifying morality was in part an abstractification of morality it was an abstractification of virtue of ethics in that it went from being a way of being in the world a way of living a way of conducting yourself within the polis this is how it is to or this is what it is to be a good person to be a good citizen to be in a to be in a society to this is now an abstract good evil that gets all these layers of abstraction piled on to the point where the motivists are then saying well i guess it's just what makes you feel good and you're saying do so likewise because all these abstractions have been piled on to the point where it's like well it has nothing to do with actual being uh so i think you're right in saying that this is just so applicable to everything which is the one of the the main things that defines a classic uh it's something that applies across the board uh you know something brothers karamazov or i don't know that's my go-to classic what's another classic the iliad or uh the odyssey or insert other lists of things the bible the bible (laughs) kgb only (laughs) this is a a book that really does capture kind of i think where we are at the present moment in a much broader sense Uh, and and mcgilchrist really gets into this in part two when talking about art uh and you know in the modern time architecture and, uh, you know, follows much of the same vein as these other authors that uh, you might have read, where, you know, we're creating this world that we're living in that is, you know, farther and farther sort of of the left hemisphere of representation of shapes, right? And then you have, you know, the, especially in this time of, uh, you know, this virus, uh, all these screens, you know, and that, that really, um, that that brings us to a place that you know is pretty concerning when you think about what happens when we interact with people you know via a screen or you know just via audio or whatever um have you in fact going back to your intro uh, perhaps you know the listener who listens without you know sort of screen like you know visual uh stimulation is better off because they have you know, the ability to interact with the world around them and they aren't so taken in by, you know, the experience of what we're doing um, because it really is the sort of like medium is the message uh, that we're living in. Like, and that this book does a great job of tying together how things like, um, you know, like, like pornography, right? This repres this, this, um, you know, in our view, right? This deficient representation of the sexual experience, right? Um, how that can be connected to, you know, something like video games, which is, you know, this sort of less, you know, this deficient uh, representation of reality. You know, it is this alternate world that's been created where eventually, because it's all really just lines of code created by man, you know, you can learn every single aspect of it. And of course, you know, these systems can get so complicated that you can see things that appear to be you know, sort of real or authentic experiences and that will, you know, say stimulate your right hemisphere. But ultimately, you know, what this all tends toward is the dominance of the left hemisphere. And eventually this world that, or this feeling that when you leave that world, 
that world of the the video game, that world of the screen, whatever it may be, you know, you feel like surreal, like not in touch with reality in the same way that, you know, you would be in touch with reality if you had just spent the entire day, I don't know, picking berries outside or something like that. Uh, does that make sense? Uh, yeah, I mean, it does seem that for thousands of years, this has been one of the big projects of philosophy is a, a continual desire for the real. Uh, Plato saying, get out of the cave and go experience reality to David Foster Wallace's concern with a rampant entertainment industry that that consumes the people and leaves them wanting the entertainment rather than the reality. This does seem to be a constant theme that McGillcrest is rightly so pointing at and saying there's act like this makes sense why this is a theme, this why this is something we've struggled with. It's because there there is a civil war in our own heads. You're not necessarily even just as individuals, but really like what does it mean to be me? Well, what that means is, you know, some sort of authentic experience, you know, some some authentic encounter with <laughs> you know, the capital O other, you know, which is where you kind of get all this postmodernity stuff. Um, before we leave the sort of, you know, discussion that has to do with, you know, in my mind, you know, screens, uh, video games, the world of the left hemisphere that we now live and the way that this, you know, affects our minds. I think it is worth, you know, sort of dumping the uh, the block quotes here from uh, McGilchrist, uh, because it's worth talking about again. I think uh, this is all from chapter two, which is the super long chapter where he talks about all the brain science stuff. Um, but that's, I think, as early on in that book, you get the sense that he is talking about, he is talking about the Matrix. He is talking about Inception. Um, he is, uh, you know, talking about these things that you can relate to, even though he's talking about it in a different way. So uh, first, a quick quote from page 53. Uh, but with certain right hemisphere deficits, the capacity for seeing the whole is lost and subjects start to believe that they are dealing with different people. They may develop the belief that a person they know very well is actually being represented or uh, represented by an imposter, a condition known after its first describer as uh, Capgrass syndrome. Small perceptual changes seem to suggest a wholly different entity, not a new bit of information that needs to be integrated into the whole. The significance of the part in this sense outweighs the pull of the whole, right? And that's really what the, the left hemisphere does is you know, abstract individual uh, parts. And then the really long block quote that I have from the bottom of page 56, which is sort of three paragraphs here, um, the right hemisphere prioritizes whatever actually is and what concerns us. It prefers existing things, real scenes and stimuli that can be made sense of in terms of the lived world. Uh, whatever it is that has meaning and value for us as human beings, it is more able to assimilate information from the environment without automatically responding to it. And possibly as a result, developing right hemisphere is more sensitive to environmental influences. At the same time, the left hemisphere is more at home dealing with distorted, non-realistic, fantastic, ultimately artificial images. This may be because they invite analysis by parts rather than as a whole, but it does appear that the left hemisphere has a positive bias toward whatever is bizarre, meaningless, or non-existent, though the data here are particularly hard to interpret because most studies have not sufficiently distinguished confounding elements. The fact that, while things are still present in their newness as individually existing entities, not represented as representatives of a category, they belong to the right hemisphere, can be seen in the light of this distinction between the living and the non-living, since as they become over-familiar, inauthentic, and therefore lifeless, they pass to the, to the left hemisphere. And that's sort of the, you know, world of the video game where, you know, you can think about, you know, 
certainly in my generation, I think we've all, you know, played a fair number of games where you get a new game, you pop it in, and it's this, you know, amazing new atmospheric experience or, you know, whatever you want to say. I think for me, maybe you, you think about like playing Metroid Prime, uh, you know, which is the first 3D Metroid game, had great creepy music, um, you know, and was really suspenseful and is a sort of like exploration shooter uh, dealio. Um, and, um, you know, that's really cool, but you know, and, and this is not true, you know, not just of, you know, individual games, but after playing enough video games, I think you sort of start to start to see it's all the same thing, really. Like, you're no longer getting kicked immediately to the right hemisphere to experience a new system or a new process to learn. As you learn all the game's control schemes, uh, the similarities between all these video games that are being made, you know, you start each time, each new game, you start closer and closer immediately to the world of the left hemisphere and that sort of you know infects your perspective on the way that you you know are influenced by the game or the way that you perceive the game you know and and immediately you might start to do you know more bizarre things where you treat the game world as something that is you know not real you might do something you know ridiculous in the game as often people do because it's a video game uh you know whereas you know perhaps in your first experience where you're still becoming acclimatized, you know, it's best to treat it, you know, as the real deal. And that's where you get that feeling of like, oh, this is a cool, authentic experience. So, you know, it's a real conflict that comes, you know, and something that's like that I've been personally obsessed with because, you know, video games have been a big part of my life. But, you know, I read this book and uh, it gave me the, the tools to sort of see, you know, this is connected to this whole part of my mind that, you know, I'm already kind of getting overstimulated from all these cultural and environmental factors, you know, and that's not even to say this sort of like abstract connection. You can think about the analogy I made initially about um, almost like video games and pornography, right? You think about pornography as this deficient understanding of the sexual experience. You can think about video games as perhaps a, a deficient understanding of, you know, let's just say, for example, fighting a war. I can't ever say I've shot somebody, but I've shot plenty of people in a video game. You know, what does that say about, you know, sort of that desensitization process that happens there? And so, you know, at some point, that sort of uh, cognitive dissonance maybe forces you to think, you know, is this really what I should be doing with my time? And and that's something that I've been grappling with for the past, you know, five years since I've read the book. And, you know, that's I think that sort of thing is where the book really becomes very useful. It's funny. So you you spoke of getting lost in the uh in the world of the video game in the first game that came to mind was metroid prime for me i i remember playing it in middle school and it was it, it was one of the most immersive games i played to date uh and first there, there was something delightful about the idea of, of building a world and telling a quality story and seeing the story unfold and it, it come it comes with a, a weight to it that that certain great games do come with in that there's a story that that you want to be a part of. At the same time, man, video games I, that does have to be a left hemisphere. Uh, I'm trying to I'm trying to think of the the right word for it. Um, there's also something Master and Zemsary about trying to think of uh, similar words. Uh, <laughs> uh, there, it, it has to be uh, the left hemisphere's favorite thing, shall we say? In that it is creating a complete echo or uh, a closed system that is completely abstract that is able to 
be self-contained that the left hemisphere has to absolutely gobble up. Uh, it, and it's a it, it's an intriguing thing in that I I personally like video games. I don't quite have time for them anymore, but I have enjoyed them. But there is this reality of having to acknowledge that they are encouraging this detached view of reality that arguably isn't the most healthy thing in the world. I also just have to note here uh, that I never played Metroid Prime, nor was it any part of my growth process. So all this is saying is that y'all are old. I don't know what is up with you. Also, my parents like wouldn't let me have a Game Boy or whatever, so that's also part of it. I'm 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 sure. Uh, I'm trying to think what my like earliest like significant games that like you know were a, a big part of my life. Probably Madden 08 um, is what I can think of. No, no, wait. Was it 08 or was it earlier than that? No, I think it was Madden. If it wasn't Madden 08, it was like Madden 07 or something. It was pretty pretty late. Or like KOTOR. KOTOR was, was huge. Ah, uh, there we go. Yeah. yeah. I was yeah. thinking of like getting lost in the story of Madden 08. Like, I, no, I, I, I that's difficult. You know, and, and even Metroid Prime, you know, it's not like the, the story is, is like, you try and explain the story of Metroid Prime or whatever. You know, it, it kind of like, it's really simplistic. It's more about that feeling. What you remember is the atmosphere. And this this actually, you know, to take another quick tangent, this makes me think of uh, Halo. So uh, I recently watched, you know, an interview that the music composer for Halo, uh, you know, the audio director, Martin O'Donnell, who still lives in Seattle. Um, you know, Halo has fantastic music. All right, all right. So, as fun as it is to talk about video games, and Zach, we'll, we'll definitely have to have you back on to uh, talk through uh, the metaphysics of video games, or maybe the lack thereof. But, let's get back on track with Ian McGilchrist and the Master and his Emissary, Part 2. Uh, Zach, so just give us like a, a preview, like what are we looking forward to uh, here coming up? The first thing he's got to lay out is the sort of historical dialectic. And the thing about part two is you start to realize you know that right away that uh that he's kind of indebted to nietzsche a little bit he draws pretty heavily on this you know dionysian versus the apoll uh, apoll apollonian 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 thank you uh you know sort of pushing each other forward like there's this advancement historical advancement of the left and right hemisphere and they sort of exchange off and push each other forward you know, and, and basically the thesis is now the pendulum has swung too far. You know, we are in left hemisphere land and we have have more barriers than ever to return to, you know, sort of the Dionysian advancement. So in the same way, you know, it sort of echoes Nietzsche's longing for this pre-Socratic, you know, Greek drama. Um, you know, and from McIntyre, we know that that's all kind of, you know, decontextualized, that longing. So how do we, you know, how do we find, how do we find that in today's world? Uh, so that's kind of the general framework that he lays out, uh, that there is this growing independence of each hemisphere from one another uh, as each advances. And it can yield, you know, sort of dramatic rewards like the sort of, you know, scientific and technological advancement and improvement to human life and and human flourishing that we have, you know, in, in modern times, you know, with uh, longer lifespans, you know, all, all that sort of thing. Right. But it's just less stable. Right. It is it is ultimately less stable. So that's the framework which this is uh, set in. And so um, here I will read ahead to uh, early in uh, the coming chapters uh, first on the ancient world. Uh, so this chapter talking about, um, you know, basically pre-Socratic times 
All right, so starting on 260. This leads me to a consideration of the thesis of Julian Jaynes' remarkable classic, The Origin of Consciousness and the Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind. This book, now more than 30 years old, caused a stir when first published and has remained in debate ever since. Jaynes, who was a psychologist at Princeton with an interest in the ancient world, put forward a thesis that consciousness, in the sense of introspective self-awareness, first arose in Homeric Greece. He posits that when the heroes of the Iliad and the Old Testament are reported as having heard the voices of the gods or God giving them commands or advice, this is not a figurative expression. They literally heard voices. The voices were speaking their own intuitive thoughts and arose from their own minds, but were perceived as external because at this time, man was becoming newly aware of his own hitherto unconscious intuitive thought processes. These intuitive thought processes James identifies with the workings of the right hemisphere. He compares the phenomenon with the auditory hallucinations experienced in schizophrenia, in which there is some evidence that the speech that surfaces as hallucination may be arising from the right hemisphere. His contention, which it will be apparent is almost contrary to my own, is that at this time there was a breakdown of the previously bicameral mind, mind with two distinct chambers or hemispheres, and that it was the relatively sudden disconcerting access of the left hemisphere to the workings of the right hemisphere that resulted in the phenomena described. Now, skipping his section about what James uh, thinks about, you know, schizophrenia, because that kind of conflicts with McGilchrist, McGilchrist now runs with this idea. I believe James was near to making a breakthrough, uh, did in fact make one, but that perhaps derailed by the view of schizophrenia outlined above, his conclusion was diametrically opposed to the one he should have drawn. His insight that there was a connection between the voices of the gods and their and the changes in the mental world of those who heard them that this might have something to do with the brain, and that, indeed, that it concerned the relationship between the hemispheres remains, in my view, fundamentally correct. However, I believe he got one important aspect of the story back to front. His contention that the phenomena he describes came about because of the breakdown of the bicameral mind, so that the two hemispheres previously separate now merged, is the precise inverse of what happened. The phenomena came about because of a relative separation of the two chambers, the two hemispheres, phenomena that were previously uncomplicatedly experienced as part of a relatively unified consciousness now became alien. Intuitions no longer acted on unselfconsciously, no longer transparent, no longer simply subsumed into action without the necessity of deliberation, became objects of consciousness brought into the plane of attention, opaque, objectified. Where there had been previously no question of whether the workings of the mind were mine, since the question would have no meaning, there being no cutoff between the mind and the world around, no possibility of standing back from one's own thought processes to ascribe them to oneself or anyone or anything else, there was now a degree of detachment that ena- which enabled the question to arise and led to the intuitive, less explicit thought processes being objectified as voices, as they are in schizophrenia, viewed as coming from somewhere else. This interpretation, moreover, has the advantage that it fits with what we know about the tendency in schizophrenia to bring into consciousness awareness pro- awareness processes normally left unconscious and intuitive. Putting it at its simplest, where Jane interprets the voices of the gods as being due to the disconcerting effects of the opening of a door between the hemispheres so that the voices could for the first time be heard, I see them as being due to the closing of the door, so that the voices of intuition now appear distant, other, familiar but alien, wise but uncanny, in a word, divine. That is excellent. I and really that does bring to mind like man what must it have been whether it was uh Homeric Greece or before or after whatever or what have you but like 
to be the first human to start experiencing consciousness. What sort of, no one to rely on, no one to ask what's going on. Man, what a thought. And then, and, you know, and you would be a hero too. You would be the first of men, really, if you. Mm -hmm. Wow. That, yeah, that's, that's wild. And then, you know, it just, it's funny that, you know, as a Christian, you know, as, as someone who follows, you know, this religion philosophically and, and, you know, as best as, you know, well, you know, certainly uh, try to in practice what had to happen is that the word had to become flesh in order to sort of bridge this new understanding. And that's where, you know, when you get into this part two of McGilchrist, things just start, you know, flying in all sorts of directions about what he's talking about. And that's where, you know, regardless of what he actually says, you start to see how, how applicable this really is to history. It gets pretty wild. Looking we'll strap ourselves in. All right. Wow. Uh, yeah. So if, uh, if all of it's like that, I, 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 I think it will live up to the hype. Um, Absolutely. Okay. So uh, to transition away from uh, talking about the master and his emissary, of course, we will be back with uh, part two of the book. I believe Stephen uh, is going to tee us off for a short article titled Look at Me, Our Need for Real Presence in a Distracted World by Patricia Snow from all the way back in 2016 on uh, First Things. So, Stephen? Indeed. So this excellent article starts out as a review on the book Let Me Hear Your Voice. It is a book uh, that is referencing a quote from Song of Songs uh, in, in essence, God's Love Song to Humanity. And... Uh, during this time, this was written in 1993, kind of before uh, autism became uh, a lot more well-known, a, a lot more kind of, um, uh, well, well-known is the word for it. Uh, and it's a discussion, uh, the author is uh, Catherine Maurice, uh, who had a daughter who was autistic. And it was about her struggles throughout this, uh, this process of uh, trying to make, uh, trying to create a life for her daughter. And this uh, involves a rather intense process known as behavioral analysis. In which, which is designed to do an early intervention on autistic children, in order to allow them to adapt to life in a healthy way, um, to the point where I and I actually wasn't aware of this. Uh, I, I have a, a friend who does behavioral analysis, or at least did behavioral analysis, but I wasn't aware of the fact that this can actually "quote unquote" cure autism, in that it can it can equip the child with the tools such such that they can have a fully a fully functioning life and act as though they didn't have autism which stunned me i didn't know this was a thing uh and but this process it, it is incredibly painful it is incredibly time uh, uh time consuming it is not only dropping off your your child for behavioral analysis sessions but it is also involving you going through drills with them pretty much training the child to be able to interact with people um and it is uh, even from the short uh, summary, a, a rather heartrending tale of uh, this mother kind of continually never giving up on her child, even when her child would completely ignore her, would completely kind of look past her. Uh, and this mother's determination to kind of, uh, as uh, or as one of the quotes says, uh, quote, uh, like, like the God in Don's sonnet, batter my heart, three-person God, she storms the walls of her daughter's condition, end quote. Uh, 
it, the the idea of this mother not refusing to not have a relationship with her daughter, even though at the time her daughter seemed to not want that relationship. Um, uh, quite inspiring. But uh, the the article then goes on to point out some rather strange uh, tendencies in our own society to be avoiding relationships, to be uh, separated from each other and from God. And it does so in a way that, uh, actually, uh, I've already uh, been teed up by Zach uh, in that, uh, in describing kind of both the technological crisis, and I think this this particular article leans into the technological crisis, but McGilchrist would take a step back and say, no, this is our society leaning into left-brain mode of being. Um, very abstract, very... Uh, very away, very apart, uh, the, the parts separated from the whole. Uh, and he also, also, throughout his book, um, has noted that uh, children have been uh, increasing in autistic uh, symptoms far more than, uh, than should be, far more than, than rates would indicate. And this article brings up the same thing in that it is uh, uh, people, especially ones that have been raised in the last 10, 15 years or so, have been experiencing breakdown in communication due to interactions with technology. Uh, technology causes interactions to be shallow because you're constantly uh, checking your phone for other options. Uh, the, there's a, some brief commentary on free, fear of missing out and whatnot. Uh, but uh, so the, the article, in essence, says that uh, technology or attributes most of this to our increasing obsession with uh, technology. Um, there is one particular. Uh, pithy little little jab that i enjoyed uh saying that is there a reason that uh apple's logo is an apple with a bite out of it um in that we have we have indeed kind of taken this knowledge and it has turned out to be both for our our good we now know good but we certainly now know evil we have been kind of disconnected due to this uh the the article ends with the rather heartwarming tale uh of the conclusion of this woman's daughter's uh, journey, at least this part of the journey, um, which I think is worth quoting uh, in, in most. Uh, quote, Maurice's book, in other words, is not fundamentally the story of a child acquiring skills, though she acquires them perforce. It is a story of restoration of a child's relationship with her parents. In this work of restoration, the child's gaze comes back first. In intermediate breakthrough moments, she greets her father when he comes home from work and calls her mother for the first time ever in the night. And in the end, when her parents take her to be reevaluated, her recovery is confirmed when the doctor, who greets the child who shyly returns his greeting, knows immediately what has been accomplished. Congratulations, he says softly. He knew. Even before we'd said anything, or gone through the videotaping, the parent interview, the violin test, there is a quality to the gaze of a normal child, a connection, a recognition of the other as a person, an interest that flashes out in the very first moments of a meeting. Dr. Cohen was seeing the absence of autism, end quote. Which is equally heartwarming and then also heartrending when you hear that this woman had another child that experienced similar behavior, in fact, uh, far worse than the daughter, um, and had to go through this whole process all over again and kind of knew what she was up against. But this woman's determination is nothing short of inspiring. Um, and the author of this article uses it as inspiration saying, no, we as society can overcome this abstraction. We can overcome this difficulty of connecting with others, despite whatever technology may be throwing at us. Uh, and and uh, the author of the article uh, brings up uh, the fact that the, the church is particularly well equipped to handle this. We as a society can, and in fact, must overcome this. Yeah, uh, she, there's another, there's some great quotes from this article. Um, 
this idea that this story uh, that she's talking about from the book uh, by Catherine Maurice, let me hear your voice, that it's really uh, this kind of struggle with autism is a metaphor for the spiritual condition of fallen man. Uh, that's a direct quote. Uh, another quote in this reading of the book, the mother is God watching a child of his wander away from him into darkness, a heartbroken, but also a determined God determined at any cost to bring the child back. Uh, and, and then sort of uh, to talk, you know, another block quote that I think, uh, you know, the title of the article comes from this. In the protocols developed by Ivar Lovas for treating autism spectrum disorder, every discrete trial in the thera therapy, every drill, every interaction with the child, however seemingly innocuous, is prefaced by this clear command, look at me. If absence of relationship is a defining feature of autism, connecting with the child is both the means and the whole goal of the therapy. And these these drills uh, were it, it kind of all summed up in this uh, this one uh, particular uh, quote from the from the book um, that well maybe not all summed up I uh, sorry let me start over I uh, all of the tension that was found in these drills kind of the, the thrust of what was going on I uh, is, is is kind of accurately summed up in this one experience that the the uh, mother had. I, when she finally kind of had almost just about had enough um, and kind of the, the end time of going through these drills I, the, and her daughter continually kind of rejecting her, just ignoring her, what have you. Um, there's a, there's a, a cool or not cool, a, a rather uh, gripping section. Uh, I sat down on the floor back against the wall. That's not Anne-Marie, I whispered. I don't have to love her because that's not Anne-Marie. This ho frozen hostile calm lasted for a couple of hours. Then it shattered under a storm of grief, doubly violent for having been denied. No, I could not turn away from her. She was lost in her own world, and I only had to look at her mournful face to know that whatever, wherever she was wandering, it was neither a good nor a happy place. My peace and my happiness were inexorably bound up with her. Her future and mine were one. As she was drawn deeper and deeper into that dark wood, she carried in her small hands my broken heart. End quote. And, I mean, man, what, what a summary of the human condition, right? Indeed, indeed. Yeah, good, good stuff. Um, all right. Well, now I do believe it is time to transition to the final portion of this podcast. Uh, when we started off, I believe that uh, Zach had not yet planned his. Zach, have you thought of one yet? What, uh, what constitutes a rant? I mean, it kind of sounds like it you know, would have to be defined by some, you know, angry fish shaking or, or something along those lines. But uh, hey, no, no. so, so rants can either be something that you're angry about, or they can also be unhappy. So like my rant, for example, this week is going to be a positive rant. Uh, and, 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 you know, sometimes it is helpful um, when you're, you know, trying to learn a new thing, if other people go first. So, uh, we can have the order uh, be that we'll all go before you go, and then you can come uh, in the end. Um, uh, yeah, and and we should actually be able to have, or you should be able to see um, several different uh, uh, examples here. Um, I'm just stalling, stalling, stalling. Uh, okay, what else? Uh, video games, uh, other things. Um, Da, da, da. Are you trying to give examples of like what to rant on? Uh, 
Sure, sure, Stephen. What are some of the classic examples of of rants that we've done? What are some of the best your, ones? Your Tupperware fiasco comes to mind. Uh, my extreme irritation with uh, realtors. Your mm. hatred of Frozen Two. My hatred of Dragon Prince. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, like Zach, is, is if there's just anything that you you know are particularly piqued about, I'm sure you have something about music, right? Like, what's a song you've listened to and you're like, this is garbage, or you know, just just do like a boomer thing about like hip hop or something. Come on. Uh, great, but uh, I guess to to kick off our our rant, uh, maybe we can have uh, perhaps an old friend go ahead and give us an example of a rant. Uh, so, uh, Sam, welcome back to the pod for the first time in several months. Thank you. Sam! <laughs> you exist! Was this planned? Did we plan this? I planned it. He planned it. Oh my gosh, it is good to see you. You are Cypress sore eyes. That is good to see you. Good yeah, to see you. I accidentally uh, said your name when they introduced me because, but I am not oh, Sam. Okay. I am Zach. <laughs> you know, oh, I thought that was intentional. That was great. <laughs> but I yes, just, yeah, yeah. All right. So we have Sam on the pod again after several months. He's been uh, training at a special institute so he can come back and just dominate all of us with facts and logic. Uh, is is what I've heard. Um, exactly. But, yeah. All the facts, no feelings. <laughs> uh, but, uh, Sam, I, I was just telling Zach uh, that you know sometimes mm -hmm. it helps to get some examples of rants before he does his very first one. So do you want to lead us off here with, with with your rant? Well, sure. My rant actually it it pertains to Zach. Unfortunately, sorry, Zach, <laughs> but you know you guys are probably talking about modernity and transience and baselessness, and you know it's just one of the most annoying things about our modern society is when you you try to pursue your telos, but as you do that, the associations that you were once a member of um, and must leave, uh, just shamelessly cast you aside, um, replace you even. And it's really quite tragic. So that's just my, I guess that, that's a short rant, but I think you know exactly what I'm talking about here. Um, just one terrible. time. <laughs> uh, all right uh steven your rant sir i think i'll actually rant on christmas music and it will be both a positive and a negative rant in that i i am increasingly convinced that the re the number one reason people hate christmas music is the track that is played on most radio shows and that like i, I uh, like a week or so ago well before thanksgiving I think it was before Thanksgiving, at least walking through the, the um, uh, grocery store where I have you doing, doing grocery shopping and the, 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 the drivel that was played, it gnaws at your soul because it is trite. It is cliche. It is just not what Christmas music can be. And listen, so going home and remedying the situation by listening to quality uh, Christmas music it is incredible the the difference uh you that and i i can never figure out why radio shows don't or uh radio um stations or stores or what have you like why they don't have quality christmas because it exists it is sublime it is beautiful uh the 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 christmas hymns uh that are able to capture the spirit that that mournful yet hopeful uh ethos that comes with uh nativity 
they, they can be some of the most sublime musical experiences you can have. And yet, we are constantly subjected to Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree and other uh, drivel such as that. Steven, I don't quite understand your perspective there, because personally, I think, you know, hearing all I want for Christmas is you on repeat for like 24 hours is like, that is the peak of civilization. That's that's as good as we're going to get. Uh, the other thing that's the, like the best thing that civilization came up with is my rant, which is a positive one, uh, which I don't think I've talked about before. But if I have, then I, I, I just have to do it again, because brunch, I get it. It's the best Thing ever. I didn't understand until I moved to DC and then we I started having brunch and I understand it. It's like the coolest meal of the day. It's like a late breakfast, so you're hungry and you really appreciate the food. It's not 9 a.m. so you can like kind of drink without feeling like total scum, you know, like a mimosa or a Bloody Mary who did nothing wrong, as we know. Uh and it also has surprisingly little alcohol, so like you're not even that bad. It's just like a lot of tomato juice. So it, it's actually like pretty healthy it's it's very much out of proportion from normal cocktails which are like one like one uh about even between the hard liquor and the uh whatever else is, is in there but bloody mary it's like four to one um in favor of the tomatoes and then the food can be lunch or breakfast food which is just great it's it's, it's like the most variety that, that you can get in any meal plus because you're collapsing two meals into one you don't get bloated and you can eat pretty much as much as you want and, and you're fine. You're also at your mental peak for the day because you're, you, you've woken up, but you're not like, you know, in the noon slump. Um, and so conversation is, is excellent. The food is excellent. The drinks are, are excellent. And like the DC area, apparently the brunch scene is just bumping. And just like a week ago, maybe two weeks ago, we went to this barbecue place for brunch and it was really, really good. And I got a $5, Margarita, uh, not Margarita, but Bloody Mary that was just giant. And it had two sticks of bacon just stuffed into it with a piece of celery and some giant olives. And it was so good. It was rimmed with uh, uh, pepper cayenne salt, you know, pepper cayenne salt rim. It was so good. It's amazing. If you haven't done brunch because it's a meme, just go do it. Do it with a friend. It is so worth it. Uh, the one caveat that I would say is I'm told that it is a DC thing to like get wasted at brunch and then like I presume you nap for the rest of the day and then wake up and go to the bars at night. Don't do that. Just go and have one, but brunch, do it. That that is my rant. I concur. Also you can sleep in. Yes. That well no. No, you have to get up and go to mass, Sam. Then then you go get brunch. All right. Uh or you're not Catholic. <laughs> that is an option. Well, uh, you know, I think I, I can't really give any negative rants, you know, other than the fact that y'all are making me miss the Packers game. So I better uh, come back here and find out that they, you know, thrash the Eagles. But, you know, what a, what a weird year just... to uh, watch the NFL. Oh, they are? Oh, tell me. They are. I was just watching the Seahawks game, and I'd rather be watching the Packers game. Awesome. The Seahawks All are right. getting thrashed by the New York Giants. Are you serious? Ooh. I'm serious. The Seahawks' number one skill is they always play at the level of their opponents. So if we're playing a good team, we play good. If we're playing a bad team, we will play horribly. Yeah, but, you know, I don't know. I feel like you you at least, you know, like you would have played to the level of the Niners in last year's NFC Conference Championship game. Like, we just, we get destroyed. Like, there's so many Conference Championship games the Packers made it to in the last decade where it just feels like, like, we just got annihilated. Like, you remember the, you know, the Falcons destroyed us before going to play the Patriots and then getting that surprise, you know, second half, uh, they get beaten overtime or, uh, 
you know, last year where we just get beat by the Niners, you know, that was just super disappointing. But, you know, my rant doesn't actually have to do with the NFL. I mean, I just wanted to say how thankful I am for my family and my two little brothers. I have a, like a 13, 14 year age gap uh, with them. And, um, you know, the, the next oldest who's uh, I think like uh, 14, 15, 15, like 15, I don't know. I can't math. So sorry, buddy. I didn't, uh, didn't mean to uh, get that wrong. Uh, I don't I keep track quite... of my siblings ages either. Don't worry about yeah, it. Yeah. It was, they were born sometime, you know, after I was born, but, uh, you know, he sent me this picture from the, uh, the close of a chapter from personal knowledge by Michael Polanya. He's already read the master and his emissary. He's read Thucydides. He's read, you know, I don't know, Kenneth Waltz, man, the state in war, you know, Plato's Republic. I love this kid. And I just can't say how proud I am of, uh, you know, that sort of reading repertoire at that age. And I really hope that this stuff, you know, is really because it's it's really stuff that's worth wrestling with. I mean, it's it's fun to talk about and all that jazz. But, you know, where the rubber meets the road is where it gets really interesting. And, you know, not to say that, you know, reading that book doesn't really give you an advantage, but it does help you sort of self-conceptualize a little better um, and give you the language to sort of grasp at what you need to kind of understand to to better understand self-discipline, that sort of thing. So, you know, and, and he's avoided a lot of that, you know, kind of promiscuous video game influences that, you know, infected my life early on. So I, I am very thankful for uh, for my little brothers, um, you know, and uh, my family as well for, you know, just supporting me as I've been out here and away from them, uh, you know, especially with the, uh, the pandemic and all that. So, you know, very thankful for uh, for all the love and attention that they've shown me, despite the fact that I'm basically just here by myself doing my thing. So. And that may have been the most wholesome rant that we've ever had. That really was. That was. <laughs> Solid. Also, well, dang, that's an impressive brother. reading list. Yeah, uh, I gotta say, you know, that. Yeah, I, regardless of whatever he decides to do, you know, I don't. Yeah, I just, I'm really, really grateful that I've been able to have these discussions. And you know, you sent me that thing last night, and I really wanted to quote that because uh, there's there's another line in Polanya that he, you know, in there about like you know, the second apple from the tree of life. And I was just thinking about that as we we're going through the look at me article and Patricia Snow talks about, you know, the apple logo has got a bite out of it. You know, it's that kind of conspiratorial, like, you know, there's that tree of knowledge of good and evil, you know, and we've introduced this sort of second tree with technology, you know, and how are we handling the technology, you know, scientific epistemology, all that, you know, and uh, that's kind of what a lot of this discussion about how we know what we know has been about. So i I really appreciate him kind of enhancing my preparation for this podcast, if you will. Wow. There we go. Well, Zach, it has been a genuine pleasure. There is, has been. There is so much stuff that things that you said that like sparked ideas in my mind that I was like, I should bring that up. No, I should bring that up. We're already at like two hours at this point. Um, so I know Brevin texted me over an hour ago and was like, oh, yeah, we'll be ready for rants in 10 or 20 minutes and then or 20 or 30 minutes. Two hours and, later. Um, yeah. Yes. Uh, so anyway, Zach, we'll, we'll have to have you back on maybe for like a video game episode or or some such. I think that could be a gold mine. Um, but yeah. Uh, so <clears throat> uh, for everyone here at the Problem with Reading podcast, I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. I'm Zach. And I'm Sam. And uh, we'll catch you on the flip side. I will. Man, it feels good to hear that that concluding uh, sentence again. Sam, <laughs> Sam is good back. to see you guys. I was I was waiting for Sam to come in, you know, third, and I was like, oh shoot. <laughs> well, I didn't know if I was going to say anything. Do we, do we want to do that outro again, or, or are we going to leave uh, it? No, I think the, no. Okay. Uh, no. <laughs>
<laughs> also, Brett, Brett, can I just say that like every time you try to sell me on Bloody Marys, they sound worse and worse. They're so good. Oh, no, wait, 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 wait. They have like no alcohol and it's all tomato juice. Like, wait, wait, wait. No, you're not hearing me. It's got bacon in it. And 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 wait, wait, and also a bunch of cayenne pepper on it. Like, this sounds gross. Why are I drink it? Okay, so it's like cold soup, but it's tomato soup is the worst of all soups. Putting vodka in it and making it cold does not make it better. I don't know how to explain it. I, I didn't like the concept either, but it's 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 so good, guys. Come on. It, it, it is it is funny, you know, like my, my dad take me go fishing up in Eagle River when I was in high school. You know, Eagle River, Wisconsin. There's lots of lakes for fishing and we got a boat, you know, and so we'd go up and he'd always stop at this place, pull up to the dock, because you know, there's restaurants, you pull up, dock your boat, you know, goes in there, gets a bloody Mary, and then walks back to the boat and continues going. Like there's always this one stop for bloody Marys while we're fishing. It's just like, oh my gosh, what is this drink? It looks Which- awful. That's that's funny in particular because that is like the last drink I think of when like you're out on the lake fishing. I I, <laughs> I typically think like a nice cold beer or beer. like if I, if I or maybe whiskey uh, or moonshine or something like flask. that. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Out of the out of the hip flasker. I I I typically don't think bloody bloody Mary, bloody Mary in a styrofoam <laughs> cup. Oh, yeah. now we're talking. Oh, that's pushing it, but I still. Because this telling is it coming from the guy that's like, wait, 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 it's cold soup though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was not a good story. This this one might be uh, titled "The Problem with Cold Soup." If I leave this in, <laughs> I yep, I think this is quality stuff. You got to leave this in. Oh boy.